Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now that we see that there's a video audience for this show, let's, instead of trying to convert a video audience over to the audio space, let's also give them a place to go directly to more video content. This is Podcast Perspectives, a show about the latest news in the podcast industry and the people behind it. Each week, we will bring you discussions about the latest news in the audio world and conversations with leaders in the industry. I'm your host, Jeff Umbro, founder and CEO of The Podglomerate, where we help produce, distribute, and monetize some of the largest podcasts in the world. Joining me today on the show is Chris Colbert, founder and CEO of DCP Entertainment. Before founding an agency, Chris worked at SiriusXM in various roles within their podcast unit. After a very long stint at SiriusXM, Chris took his talents to Cadence 13, the now Odyssey-owned company, in order to help them develop their audio documentaries. In 2017, Chris went on to found DCP Entertainment. DCP defines itself as a media platform for underrepresented voices, including people of color, women, the LGBTQ community, and other overlooked communities. Fast forward to today, and DCP works with some of the biggest brands in the world, including State Farm, Dell, Acast, and creates some of the largest shows in the industry, including The Today Show, Democracy-ish, and the award-winning series, Say Their Name. Chris also hosts a podcast called Entrepreneur Struggle, which he creates in partnership with LinkedIn. I was recently a guest on Entrepreneur Struggle. I highly recommend that you all check it out. Today, we will chat with Chris about why he left his senior position at SiriusXM, the very concrete ways in which DCP elevates underrepresented voices in the podcast industry, and the ways that DCP is innovating in the podcast space. Thank you for joining us on the show, and let's get to the interview. Well, welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to, uh, to join you all. So I hate this question, but I ask everybody all the time anyway. How did you like get to where you are today? Cliff notes or as in-depth as you want. Like, What is your career trajectory to put you from point A to point B? Yeah, I'll do my best to make it as quick as possible because I feel like there's so many like tidbits that I want to say. But yeah. um, I started my career at, uh, well, my professional paid career at uh, Sirius XM Radio. At the time, it was Sirius before the merger happened back in like 2006 as an intern, worked my way all the way up, started getting paid in 2007 as a production coordinator and worked my way all the way up to director of urban talk and comedy, which is a politically correct way of saying I ran black and Latino talk and comedy programming. (laughs) And so, you know, a lot of the content I was doing was for those kinds of communities, but also the people that I wanted to employ and give opportunities to were also from those backgrounds. And I thought that that was a very important thing to do. But, you know, a lot of what I was seeing there and at other companies is that even if you do give people those kind of shows, they don't get the same level of talent booking and marketing and press as say, a white, cis, heterosexual male hosted program. And so that journey within that company, but also just looking at the greater media landscape made me realize that you know, I want to give more of a an opportunity for people of color, women, LGBTQ+, and that was the basis for creating DCP Entertainment. And to be completely honest, it was going to be a video documentary company at first. I wanted to do like this documentary on homelessness. Before I could really jump all the way into that, um, I got hired away from Sirius to a company called Cadence 13, 
which is now part of Odyssey. Stayed with them for a year. That really got me my foray into podcasting and realized that this medium was a lot of the creativity and freedom that I remember from the early days of Sirius. And so it's also a, a podcasting being this industry that is still fairly young compared to all the other media formats. And so if I want to create this equity, this is a great space to do it with them before we get to a point of Oscar so white. Yeah. And so like that's when I made that pivot uh, for DCP to say, all right, we're a media company, but we're going to be very podcast forward as we start things. Yeah, I have a, a, a thousand questions based on that thread alone. But to start, your mission at DCP is to lift, you know, underrepresented voices. How are you actually putting that into practice? Like, what are some of the things that that you do every day that like other networks or institutions in the podcast space can also do? Yeah, I think you know, first and foremost, it's giving those opportunities to the host, but also the people behind the scenes, having your content team reflect the audiences that you're speaking to, which sometimes means you have to hire freelancers and it's not just all in-house staff because maybe you, you think of a project or maybe you partner with somebody and they're trying to cater to a certain demographic and you might not have that kind of person on your team. I think it's really important to have those perspectives, those cultural touch points to be able to speak responsibly to those kinds of audiences. And so that means, you know, sometimes bringing on some really talented freelancers and who knows, they may end up being your next best full-time employee too. But also when it comes to the people that you see on the camera, behind the microphone, with that, we really try to be intentional about not pigeonholing people in the conversation. So representation, I think, is big. Having a incredible talent like Danielle Moody, who happens to be black and a woman and a lesbian, speaking about politics, and it's not just, hey, I'm just a black woman talking about lesbian things. No, like she's just a great political commentator and happens to come from those identities. And that then colors her perspective on the world, colors her commentary. And I think like that's really important for audiences to be able to see and to be able to hear. And so, yeah, I think that's where we try to take that responsible approach to, you know, catering to these kinds of communities. And that's uh, democracy-ish, if anybody's interested in listening. On on that note, like, do you find, because I, I see this at Poglomerate sometimes where it's like, you know, we make a bunch of literary shows and then we get approached by a bunch of literary podcasters, for example. Like, do you find that you are being approached by people who want to work within DCP or is it more of like an outbound facing situation where you're actively going out and seeking like that kind of talent to work with? I think it's evolved over the years. You know, we, I really went all in with the company back in 2018. And so over these, you know, last five years, the first three, I'd say we were really going out and searching for people. Uh, now I think we've made enough of a name for ourselves. We had some incredible projects and worked with, you know, great partners. And so word has gotten around about, you know, people who want to work for the company, but also people who want to partner with us. So now we do have more people who reach out to us and say, I love what you're doing. I'd like to be a part of that. Or, hey, we have this new project coming up and we really want to speak to these these communities or we want to touch on social justice issues, but we don't know how to do it responsibly. We do a project called Say Their Name, uh, one that I host, write and, and executive produce along with my chief operating officer, Adele Coleman, where we go around the country interviewing families impacted by police violence. And so, you know, we have to work in trauma and deal in social justice and doing so in a responsible way. And so sometimes we get hired or get inquiries based around those things. But yeah, I think a lot of people come to us just based on some of the work that we've done, the people that we've worked with, and that opens up those opportunities for us to work with others. And and how do you measure success? Like, are you quantifying this at all? Yeah. And I think there's there's multiple levels of success. Obviously, there's the financial side. We are a for-profit company. Uh, so yes, we, we measure success there. And I think we've done a good job diversifying our income recently to really take hold of that while say like the ad marketplace might be down. We lean in more to the work for hire stuff, which we've you know had some great opportunities with, but also looking at like social media and all these other ways to monetize. So 
you know, we have seen success there, but I also think we've seen success from impact. Uh, again, I'll reference back to say their name, the impact of hearing when these families tell us, wow, this is the first time I've truly been able to tell my story in a full and complete way. And even them saying like, hey, you know, some of the family members that you interviewed, these are stories I've never even heard. That is, is impact. Also taking it beyond that, this past season that we did that was more focused on women impacted by police violence, uh, our work was actually taken to uh, the United Nations. Oh, wow. As part of a study that's hopefully going to help to bring some kind of accountability and some kind of actions around police violence, particularly around women. So like that is a really impactful piece that I never saw coming. Krista Noel, who is one of the people featured in our series, is the one who spearheaded that. She's gone to Geneva and all these things. And yes, yeah, she compiled our work to put into her study that she took to them. So, you know, impact is, is, I think, a really big piece of what we do. We are mission driven as well. And so and I think that is also success. I think that and I want to come back to to that aspect a little bit in terms of like how you operate as like a business in that regard, looking out for the equity and the stakeholders on every side, including at DCP. But before we dive into that, what are the services that DCP offers? Like, what do you do every day? Sure. So we're essentially like a one-stop shop for, for media, but especially in the podcasting space. So we are now a media agency, but I think we're most known as a production company where we you know, can come in and consult when it comes to uh, ideating on a new show. How are you going to reach certain audiences, setting goals, things like that. But also on the pre-production side of bringing in staff for research putting together trailers, things like that. We can record. We actually have a space here in Times Square, which I'm currently in, where we can record content in New York, but we have relationships with studios around the country. So we have ways to record your content, even if it's remote like this, using something like a Riverside, things like that. And then we also do the post-production, editing, and then into distribution, marketing, and sales. So part of the, the, the thing that we've always done has been very forward-facing when it came to video. So I think that's something that helps us stand out in the marketplace as well, especially as we see the, the trend these last couple of years of more video podcasts. You know, we do high-quality audio-video content, clips that can go out for social media so we can help with graphics and stuff like that for social, but we can also create long-form video content for, say, Spotify or, again, YouTube. But what we've done more recently as well as we pivoted it into being a media agency is also being a place where you can come if you're just looking for marketing and sales. We have a new show that I can't announce just yet, our new partnership. You know, we're just going to do sales and marketing for them. They, they are doing all the production. You know, we still want to make sure that it's high quality and, you know, they've already done a previous season, so we know the quality is there. But then we come in for the sales and marketing to help them strategize on the ways to get this to the audiences that they're trying to reach and use our existing or new uh, sales relationships to be able to bring in monetization, hopefully day one. And now are you marketing like products and brands, other podcasts, whoever comes to you? Whoever comes to us, um, I think there's definitely still, like, we still want to operate underneath that underrepresented communities umbrella. So, you know, some of the inquiries and conversations we've had so far are definitely more in like the nonprofit space or, you know, leading up to, to some kind of campaign that a company is doing for those kinds of communities. So that's definitely our sweet spot. But, you know, anybody who wants to come to us for those kind of services, we, we love to have those conversations. You're the director of Urban Talk and Comedy at SiriusXM, and you, you've already covered this a little bit, but I'm always curious when people have like big jobs at big institutions and then move on to kind of like create their own thing. It's interesting to me to see like you in theory had a, like a position of power where you could actually like kind of hand out shows to people and help them create podcasts and, and platforms in order to reach an audience that 
in theory has a lot of like the institutional reach from Sirius XM. And instead you went off, you created your own thing. It's turned into something great, but I'm sure initially it was probably a lot smaller. And you, you mentioned before that you did that because like, no matter what the intentions are, some of these bigger institutions aren't really putting the resources behind these shows that they might another. Would you still agree with that statement today? Now that a lot of these organizations have put in theory, like a lot of kind of resources into underrepresented voices on some of these networks. Yeah, I still think it is an issue. I think um, you can just look at some of the recent layoffs that have happened in the industry, you know, whether it be TV, radio or podcasting, but we'll, you know, kind of stick to podcasting. When you look at some of the award winning shows that have been laid off, they tend to be ones that are creators of color. But it's just so interesting to see that. Yeah, when when there's cuts that happen, we tend to be the first ones cut. When you look at the internal staffs that have been cut, a lot of times it tended to be those, you know, producers and editors of color. Back to even when I was at Sirius and kind of figuring out this new trajectory for my career, it was kind of seeing that it was a self-fulfilling prophecy at these companies where you say that these audiences don't exist for your programming and then you don't either create it or you don't market what you already have. And then you come back to your meeting and see, I told you that, you know, these audiences weren't here for podcasting or for satellite radio, but it's like, no, you didn't actually give this an opportunity to, to succeed. And so that's why you're getting this, you know, these kind of outcomes that you actually created yourself. So, yeah, I think we still have an issue with it. I think the podcasting landscape has gotten a lot better. I think the media landscape has gotten better. But I also think that a lot of this has been, and I'm not going to use the right term, but, you know, almost like a, a lip service based off of what happened in 2020, 2021 with George Floyd. And yeah. all these companies want to say, you know, we're doing all this for you know black people. We're doing these things for the LGBTQ community. And so we do these things for press releases. But, you know, there's tons of articles out there that show that, you know, the investment that a lot of these companies said that they were going to do has not been fulfilled and no one's fully checking them on that. And so, yeah, I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And that's where I want my company to help fill gaps. But at the same time, to be an example for major companies to see, oh, DCP is having success with these audiences. We can take a chance on those audiences, too. Lip service is a good way to put it. But you have a lot of people who are kind of making a lot of promises that they don't necessarily fulfill. So... I mean, I'm glad that DCP and, and you exist. I'm, I'm sorry that that's a necessary piece, but DCP is a company that kind of lives in some ways like a similar kind of layer of the ecosystem to Puglomerate, where you guys are a mid-sized company that in a lot of ways punches above your weight class and you're making these very cool shows for these very cool creators and these very cool companies. Now, as we know, and, and our listeners are probably aware, in the last year or two, there's been a lot of talk around what what is being referenced as a roll-up, but the idea of like a bunch of these smaller, mid-sized companies kind of combining forces in order to make a greater entity that may be more attractive for business operations today or for future sales. It's interesting to see kind of what's happening in the industry. And I always like to ask people who are operating in that sphere, like kind of how they view it. So how do you view that? Like, do you think that this is ultimately going to help the industry as a whole to kind of get some of these, you know, mid-tier players a little bit more power? Or is this something that's ultimately going to set us back a little bit? I think it's positive. I think anytime that you can, you know, combine your efforts to try to bring in monetization to keep things sustainable for your companies, I think it's really important. I, you know, one of the things I love the most about the podcast industry is the collaboration that is here, you know, radio, TV, even print, it's very much an adversarial kind of relationship with other companies where it's like, it's us versus you. But here it's, you know, it's an on-demand platform. So I think everybody understands that 
this is still young industry where there's still a lot of audiences that haven't been exposed to podcasting. So we can create this larger pie for everybody to eat from. So I think ultimately it's a positive thing when you combine those resources, combine those shows together to go to an advertiser and say, all right, my show doesn't get a million downloads, but when you combine all of our shows together, maybe we get there. And hopefully it's a targeted audience where now you can charge maybe a premium rate to be able to hit that. You know, that premium rate is also something where as a company, we've been trying to help to shift, I guess, the norms in podcasting. We're not the only ones doing it, where we're trying to get away from the CPM model. I think it very much devalues these audiences that we have, especially these niche audiences. And I don't say niche in terms of like ethnicity niche. No, no, of course. It's like specification. Exactly. And so I think there's really valuable audiences. And as we continue to improve the data that we can get and to learn about our audiences, whether that be through surveys or what these podcast hosting sites give us, that's going to, I think, truly give us the ability to go to advertisers and say, here's, you know, you're targeting this exact audiences. And that's why you need to pay this premium price, not this CPM model, which again, is the CPM model is better than say YouTube and some other mediums. But I still think there's so much more value to our audiences, especially when you look at how much influencers on social media get paid. They get paid, you know, $10,000 per post, some of them. And yet, you know, as podcasters, we're trying to scrape together $25 for a thousand people to, to listen to a podcast. So yeah, combining those resources are great, but I still think there's a larger thing that we need to tackle here in the industry, which is valuing those niche audiences. Okay. So, uh, so much to, to dive into there. <laughs> Sorry, I go on so many tangents. No, no, I love it. <laughs> is it working? Like, are you able to find advertisers who are willing to pay like a flat rate as opposed to a CPM? It's a newer thing that we've been doing, but we are seeing some success there. And part of it is because our company, DCP, is audio, it's video. We've actually kind of pivoted our business model to being also social media content creation and just marketing services as a whole. And so what we're doing is like uh, essentially 360 sales. So yes, you can buy just the podcast app, but what we're really trying to encourage is that to really get saturation for your brand, you need to be hitting your audiences in many different places at the same time. So we're going to sell you on the podcast for your mid-roll or pre-roll position. We're going to sell you in the clips that we put on social media. We're going to do, you know, if it, if it makes sense, we're going to do product placement or a logo on our video content that goes on YouTube. Essentially, we can also then tie in brand ambassadorship with our host. So they're going to put out X amount of posts that are specific about your brand to say, I love this thing or, hey, I'm rocking these headphones. So, you know, I think we've seen some success there, again, especially as we look at companies who might be afraid to put in money in podcasting but they already have a big budget in social media, we can now combine you know, those budgets. They can say, all right, we only have $10,000 to spend from our podcast budget, but we have 100,000 to spend from our social media budget. So let's pull those together and you know, be able to advertise uh, on say Toure Show and, and also then have you know, some of those, cl- those viral clips that go out of there also have branding for that brand. I love that. That is so smart. It's kind of like an evolution on product placement and, uh, and people are always talking about, you know, like 360 degree packages where you can hit all of these different touch points, but it is so hard to execute, not only (laughs) selling it, but then actually like doing it and doing it well, it's, it's tough. So kudos to you. Given that when you're looking at bringing on like a new show to the network or creating a new show, are you looking for somebody who has an existing audience on all of these platforms or are you like looking to build those audiences for the right voices? I think it depends on the season that we're in as a company. So right now, yes, we are looking for you know, people already have an existing audience, whether it be through their current podcast or whether it be because they're a social media influencer or somebody on TV or something like that. But in the past, you know, we have you know taken people who it's just, hey, this is an incredible idea. There's nobody else doing this in the landscape. We want to champion this show. But I think there has to be a balance between the two. You know, we want these, these shows that already have an audience or these people already have an audience. That way we now, as a network, have a place to cross promote our new show with 
that say maybe someone you'd never heard of and just is a really great idea. So I think right now we have a decent amount of those kind of programs where, you know, like I said, I, I host two podcasts on our network, but most people don't know who I am. I'm not some big influencer. And so you are in the podcast space, but <laughs> oh, thank you. And so like, yeah, I think, you know, we have, you know, people like Shante, Hal, Lacey Henderson in the past where, you know, they actually have done incredible things, but you just might not know their name. And so we need to balance that with a Toure or a Danielle Moody where we can cross promote there. So yeah, I think it's a balance, but at this current moment, we're definitely looking for those existing audiences so we can leverage right out of the gate with sales and marketing and things like that. It's so funny because, I mean, there's so few examples of like uh, a normal gossip where a show seemingly comes out of nowhere and is able to like just get this massive audience and become part of the zeitgeist. So I know a lot of networks are trying to start with somebody who already has an existing platform, but it's a lot easier said than done. And and also, like I was talking about the cross-promotion opportunity, but hopefully those shows, you know, those those people who already have a following, they can also make money that then allows you to spend, be able to have more marketing for those, say, lower tier shows. One of my favorite conversations is asking networks like what their relationship is to the creators on the network. I know that that can get like really sticky in a million different ways as to like who owns what and the RSS feed and the IP and the brand and the audio and and everybody has a different answer to that question. So how do you think about that? Like I'm sure it's different for each of the different creators that you work with, but is this a situation where you like to own the content on the network? Is it a partnership with your creators? How do you think about it? So I think, you know, ownership, we always try to leave it with the, the person who created the show. So, you know, we only own IP if it's our own original idea, like a say their name or an entrepreneur struggle. But we have shows like Toray Show where Toray already had an existing podcast and came to us. And so we're not going to take that IP. Yeah. And so, yeah, we're essentially licensing that content to help him to, to you know, hopefully get more audience and hopefully make more money. You know, there's also things where we get hired by other companies to work on their projects. And, and so, again, we never try to dip into that IP space. But, you know, to take that question a little step further, like our relationship with our, our hosts, our partners, we have a really great relationship, especially with you know our initial hosts, where we work hand in hand with them to grow the network. Like they're very much invested in what we do as a company and they're constantly bringing us new talent. They're bringing us ideas. You know, Danielle's coming now on, you know, kind of behind the scenes to work on stuff. Torre is constantly throwing ideas out to me of new podcasts that we can do, whether it be ones he's hosting or somebody else. So it's really great to have hosts that are invested in our overall company success. And I didn't think about this when I was there, but, you know, at Sirius, one of the things that I think was a, a missed opportunity was that they just treat the hosts as hosts and forget that these are, are people who have great strategies, great ideas. And so it's just like, oh, yeah, just come in and speak on the microphone. No, you can have these strategy sessions that can help grow the overall brand. Um, and so why, don't, why not tap into that? And that's what we've definitely done with the, the hosts and partners that we've worked with. It's kind of like the holy grail is to have buy-in from everybody within the network. And, and that just shows that you're running a great ship because, you know, if you weren't, people would not be helping you out there. Well, especially early on too, when like, you know, some of these people we weren't even making money and they were sticking with us. I'm like, why? I'm like, every day I was like dreading them leaving, but they're like, no, I'm invested. <laughs> we're going to make this work. So no, I, we owe a lot to the hosts that have been with us, especially for the last you know, three, four or five years, some of them. Yeah. I, I have a very similar experience with Pugglomerate and, you know, my gratitude is endless for, for the folks that were early and, and still to this day, everybody who works with us, but the, it's something special about the OGs. So, oh yeah. But I, I wanted to ask you about your video strategy and it, you touched on this a little bit, but 
you uh, i've actually been like on your youtube all week just like taking notes on like how you're actually executing on everything because is really smart and I, I don't actually know if it's any different than like what a typical youtube studio would be doing as an original it's just so new to podcasting but how do you think about video and in, in what you're doing so we have kind of a, a sub company underneath dcp called podstream studios based here in times square part of what we think about with that is we're spending all this money trying to rent other spaces. It just became more cost effective to do our own thing. But also all these studios you'd rent, like it was kind of cookie cutter kind of situation. So you could look at a video and know exactly where they recorded. Here, you know, you can choose different backdrops, different tables, you know, different knickknacks, bookshelves, all those kinds of things. So for us, you know, it allows us to create, you know, our own content, but also we can rent out to other podcasters that do the same thing. And I think that helps the greater ecosystem as well when it comes to video, because for us, when we think about video, especially early on, it was a great lead generator. So we really started out not putting out full episodes. We put out these short clips that were for Instagram, particularly TikTok. And we found that, especially on TikTok, it was helping bring people back to the podcast. So we'd you know, have something in our link in bio, or if it's on Twitter, actually have the link there in the, uh, the caption to send people to the pod link. So now they can choose Spotify or Apple. Like We try not to point to one specific platform because Apple is, you know, very much used here in the U.S., but outside this country, it's not. And also, you know, there's tons of Android users who don't use it. So we always try to promote as many platforms as possible when it comes to our video content. But back to the strategy itself, yeah, using these one minute or less video clips that hopefully entice you to want to hear more of the conversation. That said, more recently, we're now dipping into the full video episodes, especially for someone like Toratio, where we've seen his clips go viral, especially using YouTube Shorts. And again, on TikTok, where we get millions of downloads on some of these things or millions of impressions. Wow. Now that we see that there's a video audience for this show, let's instead of trying to convert a video audience over to the audio space, let's also give them a place to go directly to more video content. So I think we're starting to see some success there. And, you know, I, I'm still you know kind of seeing how YouTube and Spotify really play into the greater podcasting ecosystem. But, it, you know, it's worth a try. And so. You know, we're going to kind of start there and see if that has success, then we can branch out in other spaces. But I think when it comes to full video episodes, it really has to be something that makes sense for it. Toray interviews lots of successful, especially musicians. So that works really well on YouTube with their algorithm because a lot of people are listening to music on YouTube. So when you search, say, a Kendrick Lamar, you can then see his episode with Kendrick Lamar pop up as well, you know, after you listen to a song. So you know, I think that's why we're intentional with that show particularly. But say a show like Democracy, I don't know if it necessarily leans in the same way. So we'll kind of see as it goes along. But I, I think everything is just you test and you look at analytics and then you see if you want to continue doing that. It's so interesting. We're, we're kind of in the process of trying to figure that out ourselves. And YouTube is an entirely different beast. Like you have to really think about like everything from the metadata to the thumbnail to how did you actually record? Like, are you just putting an audiogram up or even this, like this interview that people will be listening to one day? Uh, like it's the two of us on Riverside, which ultimately looks like a fancy zoom, you know, it's like they could go and listen to this on Spotify without video, uh, or on Apple podcasts or wherever, but for whatever reason, some people prefer YouTube. So I don't know, I'm, I'm of the school where you should be where everyone is and, and be available wherever they might want to be. But you said something earlier about how initially you were looking to convert your video viewers to podcast listeners. And you were doing that through like links and bio and TikTok and Instagram reels. But how were you tracking that? Like how intentional were you? Was this a byproduct of you coming up with like social content? 
Yeah, it was intentional. And yeah, it was definitely in conjunction with that. We had hired a social media manager who was helping with that. At the time, we were also working with Nadia Okamoto, who is a very big influencer herself. At the time, I think she had like three or four million followers on TikTok. And so she was a great test study. I and mean, she's from the Gen Z generation, which again, I think is more into the video side of the podcasting space. And we saw like huge conversions uh, with her bringing people over from TikTok. It also depended on the subject matter. When you talk about sex or, yeah. or family or things that are like really personal, yeah. you really get those conversions. And we also found that certain conversations made sense on different platforms. Our political conversations did best on Twitter. Our more celebrity driven kind of content did better on Instagram and our more personal stuff did better on TikTok. And not just for the views there, but also convert back to the audio space. So yeah, I think all those things were helpful. And, and just back to one quick thing on YouTube, just as a resource for people, you were mentioning like those, that metadata that's so super important. I didn't know how to do all those things. So we invested in vidIQ, which has been really helpful in terms of helping us suggest keywords and making sure that you have all the metadata that you need. It gives you a checklist of, okay, you didn't put in your thumbnail, you didn't put in enough keywords. And then even when you do put in those things, it'll then show you, here's the other videos that would relate to your content. So you can see, oh, does that really align? And so, yeah, it's a really inexpensive platform that has really helped us level up our YouTube game. That's great. I'm going to check that out after this interview. Uh, we just recorded an interview on your show, Entrepreneur Struggle, which you host. I know that I was the final episode of season two, so you know, hopefully you'll be back soon. But how did that show come about? Because it's part of the LinkedIn Podcast Network, part of their accelerator program, right? Exactly. Yeah, the LinkedIn Podcast Academy. So I started as like a social media thing back in 2019 going into 2020, just where I was talking directly about my struggles. And it would just be like, all right, here's my struggles. And here is how I overcame you know, certain aspects. And so every week was a different topic I touch on. And literally the last episode I recorded, I was at a WeWork when we in New York got the notice that, oh, yeah, you need to go home. Like the, the <laughs> pandemic is really bad. You need to go home. I was literally in the middle of the thing. I was getting that alert going off my phone, like get out of the building. Wow. And I was like, well, I'm going to finish this recording. But then I stopped. And at the time, you know, I realized, like, OK, if I'm going to move forward with this, I'd like to do this where I'm talking to others about their challenges. And I can still, you know, talk about the things that I've faced. But I really want to learn because. What I found is like going to bars and just talking to people, especially during the pandemic, talking remotely to folks like a lot of us entrepreneurs have the same challenges. And a lot of us, I think, are afraid to talk about them openly because we don't want to scare away any any potential business or even scare our own staff like, oh, they don't have it all together. So why am I working here? Is this, you know, is everything going to be OK? But a lot of us do have those challenges. And like the more we talk about it, the more we feel less alone, the more we can learn from each other and the more that we just feel like okay, everything's heading in the right direction. And so I wanted to bring those bar conversations that I was having and these virtual conversations, these one-on-ones to a more of a public sphere and not just talking to people in my industry, but talking to people in every different industry. Because I also think as we learn about the challenges that people overcame and some of the things that they do to make their company unique, it allows us to apply them to our business. And I think that's where real creativity comes in these spaces. Like I can learn something from somebody in the financial sector or somebody in the IT sector that makes me think differently about how to approach my business or even approach my personal routines as I think about my companies. And so, yeah, that was the basis for creating it. I did it for uh, basically, I think like 2022, I, I did about 20 episodes. I was doing once every couple of weeks. And then at the end of that year, I was like, man, I have so many things happening with my companies. I don't have time to focus on this anymore. I ended season one. I, I think at the end of that season, like I may or may not bring it back. We'll see what happens. And lo and behold, I think it was two months later, I get an email from LinkedIn saying, hey, we're starting this accelerator program. We'd love for Entrepreneurs Struggle to be a part of it. 
that was kind of the the journey of entrepreneur struggle. And now, as you said, we just ended season two because again, I'm now in a season where things are really picking up with Podstream and with DCP. Yep. So yeah, we'll see what happens from here. It might go back to kind of like a journaling kind of thing for me. It might go back to you know doing the you know, interviewing folks, but for now, we're just gonna take a little break and just kind of see where things take us. Yeah, honestly, it's uh, I, I discovered the show a few months back, and I've been loving it. It's as a entrepreneur, I've really taken a lot of the lessons to heart. I was actually on the show a few weeks ago. Everybody should check it out. And it was it was great. It was like a therapy session with Chris. And you know, I listened back, and like half the stuff in there, it's it's so funny to your point. It's like I was embarrassed by half the stuff that I said, but like exactly to your point, like there's probably so many other people who are going through the exact same things that I did. And this is going to be something that's so valuable to them. So I'm really happy that I did it. And I'm glad you said like the therapy session thing too, because you know, I don't think I've really said this many places, but when I was a kid, I wanted to be a psychologist. And then when I went to school, I ended up studying, you know, my minor was sociology. So I'm very just interested in people, what makes people who they are and, and, and all that. And so like, yeah, this is almost like my outlet for being the psychologist I wanted to be as a kid. So I'm glad that you felt it that way. Oh, a hundred percent. And you asked all the right questions. And for me, it was like, I wanted to be an astronaut. And now I just watch Star Wars all the time. But uh, <laughs> this is the reason that I got into this industry is so that I could talk to people and learn things and, you know, make something that is hopefully valuable for some people out there. And, and so here we are. I think it's important to keep doing that. You host two shows now. You have two companies, like you're doing such cool stuff. And I, I know that this conversation between you and I will continue for years to come. And, and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. You're welcome. Have questions, tips, or podcast recommendations? You can follow me on all of the socials at Jeff Umbro. Podcast Perspectives is a production of The Poglomerate. If you're looking for help producing, distributing, or monetizing your podcast, you can find us at poglomerate.com, shoot us an email at listen at thepoglomerate.com, or follow us on all social platforms at Poglomerate. Thank you to Chris Boniello, Henry Lavoie, and Jordan Aaron for producing this show, and also to our marketing team, Joni Deutsch, Madison Richards, Morgan Swift, Matt Keeley, Annabella Penna, and a special thank you to Dan Christo. Thank you all for listening, and I will catch you next week.